Hi, I'm Kira Gorman, and you're listening to QUB Voices. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. You can find us at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify, and iTunes. Welcome to the first installment of April's set of episodes. Last month, you heard Chrissy in conversation with several guests on the topic of race, discussing a range of issues from systemic discrimination to community empowerment to social justice movements like Black Lives Matter, which continually brings the power and urgency of activism home to a global audience across multiple media platforms. This month's episodes pick up on that theme of protest, especially as it happens in the creative arena in the art we consume, in the stories we tell, in the ways we negotiate sites of contested memory and history through film, fiction, and poetry. In this week's thematic episode, I'll be speaking to two researchers from the Department of Arts, English, and Languages here at Queen's about the power of cultural artifacts like film and literature to commemorate and to call to action, to uncover disappeared origin stories, and to reaffirm our identity, our humanity, and our right to see ourselves in both the future and the past of the world we live in. I hope you're as excited as I am to hear what they have to say. For our first foray into the world of creative protest, we're turning our gaze to the intersecting fields of film, history and memory with Victoria Baltag, a PhD student here at AEL. Victoria, would you like to introduce yourself just to kick us off? Hi, Kiara. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. It means a lot to me. Um, As you introduced me as a PhD student here at uh, Queen's uh, University, Belfast, I would... uh, complete my presentation saying that I'm also a film director, a researcher, and a um, scholar activist. Uh, my research topic uh, is, uh, is about Benjamin Fondan. He was an interbellum uh, filmmaker. And um, while I am spending three years here at Queens, I will try and I will do my best to bring uh, his work back to our culture, just because um, all his work uh, has been forgotten, especially in the field of film, because he is also a poet and a critic. And Benjamin Fontaine is Romanian, isn't that right? He was born in uh, my hometown in Yash in 1989, in 14th of November. And because his ancestry was Jewish, uh, he was... Um, persecuted in Romania uh, in that specific time. So he was forced to emigrate in uh, Paris. And what happened to his work when he went to Paris? Was he able to continue working or? Yeah, actually in Paris, he was really welcomed. Uh, he, he found beautiful people to uh, cooperate with. And he was uh, present in uh, many um, literature and cultural associations. Um, and he, he worked for Paramount Pictures. He, he was like um, starting being like a director assistant uh, at Paramount Pictures. And then he continued to um, write some um, uh, scripts for actually very famous movies. He, he was uh, writing the script for um, Rapt, 
uh, the movie of Kirsanov, and it's it's really peculiar the fact that uh, he he wrote this script. This script is about um, um, conflicts of races, right, and you okay. know we all know what happened uh, soon after with Nazi and um, uh, the inconveniences um, um, opened with this wave uh, promoted by them. And he, if I if I remember rightly, he was really swept up at, in that. And I think he had a very, very sad and tragic end to his life. I think he was in he was taken to a concentration camp, if I remember rightly. Yes, unfortunately, in 1944, um, after he came back from Buenos Aires uh, in 1936, he directed um, a film uh, considered a masterpiece by those who had the chance to see it. Uh, and I will mention here the writer Gloria Alcorta. Mm-hmm. Who, who was mentioning this in several articles. Um, so he came back to Paris and um, he was captured by Nazi uh, and gazed in um, uh, 1944. And I, I would like to mention here that he had been um, offered release because, as I said, uh, French people loved him very much for all the things he contributed to the um, cultural life um, back to those times. And so um, he refused just because he was captured with his sister Lena and she could not be rescued and he could not let his heart um, leave knowing that he, he was um, um, able to, to leave and uh, she would die. So she, he remained with her there. And actually, if I can just cycle back there, you were talking about his masterpiece. Um, that film. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because he just made it and then he was captured, right? Yeah, I, I call him the Nostradamus of uh, interbellum cinema, interwar cinema, to be more mm. precise. Uh, in, in 1936, he directed uh, this movie called Tararira. It's, um, it's um, a musical uh, that was considered a masterpiece and um, um, was produced and directed after he made several I would say premonitions in the cinema. So in 1933, he mentioned about uh, 3D cinema and color cinema when these things were not even projects back to those times, right? So he collected all this information that he had in his mind and uh, he was able to make a movie that was considered a little bit too much for those times. Right. And so um, in 1936, after he finished uh, the movie and he invited several journalists and friends and uh, writers to come and see it, they were very moved by by the, um, the project. But unfortunately, um, seems like uh, the direct the producer of uh, of the um, of film was not that happy with the result. And. I have to say that the movie disappeared. So nowadays we don't have too much information about this movie. Uh, we have um, dozens of uh, making of pictures. We have the entire music because it was um, composed by a composer. Uh, we have the testimonies from from the team um, and the actors, but the actual footage is missing. And so uh, there are like three versions of uh, this disappearance. One is like um, mentioning the fact that maybe the uh, director, not the director, the producer Mm. of uh, this movie burned out the footage um, because he was not happy with the result. The second uh, option uh, is um, 
um, saying that maybe the movie was lost in the footage archives with the time um, just because they could not find an international distributor and so they, they lost it. They didn't care about it. And maybe the, the movie um, is somewhere hidden in Buenos Aires or maybe Paris in, in some film footage archives. And the third one uh, is obviously, you know, the um, uh, possibility of Nazi work. Maybe they, they wanted to destroy the um, contribution of Benjamin Fondan uh, and everything that he did because it was considered against uh, their policies. So we don't know exactly how this movie disappeared, but the thing is, um, it's, it, it was considered a masterpiece. It's, um, it's a movie that must be known, must be analyzed. And my goal is either to find this movie, either to reproduce it. That's absolutely amazing. It's like a mystery, isn't it? You can make a crime novel out of it or a, a thriller film. I would definitely go to see that in the cinema. And <laughs> it's amazing you. to think that, you know, the film was made and then there are three different options as to how it might have disappeared. And we don't know where it is. Could be languishing in an archive somewhere or it could have been burned. It's it's crazy. And and just to pick up there on, I suppose, your last point of the possibility of Nazi involvement, which would obviously be much more sinister than having it wasting away in an archive somewhere you know, the loss of cultural property was really quite common in and around the time of World War Two. And in a wider context, of course, we know that the destruction of cultural heritage is recognized as a crime against humanity because we understand that losing access to culture in, in whatever form, films, monuments, museums, um, is hugely damaging to our psyche as humans. Like it cuts us off from the past. It destroys our memory, our history, our connection to community, all of those things that are Part of the fabric of the human story and recovering or rebuilding those cultural artifacts just the way that you're doing with your search for the missing Fondane film. Thank you. I suppose you might be able to see it in some ways as a form of protest, you know, uh, against efforts to, to break us as people, to break our spirit. I don't know, is this a reading of your work that, that you agree with? Yes, totally, totally. Um, you know, I've, I've read uh, yesterday um, a little article about uh, culture and they said no culture, no future. So, so it's, it's so important for us to, to promote the culture we have, to learn from it, to develop from it. And um, a few moments ago, before uh, we've met uh, for this podcast, I, I've seen a documentary film. The documentary film started with um, those who control the past, control the future. Those who control the present will be able to control the past. And with these words, I think I've said a lot. It's exactly what's happening. We know that the history is made by those who win, right? Right. <laughs> and so uh, these things about Benjamin Fondan uh, got uh, forgotten. But in my opinion, it's like he contributed for the worldwide culture, through the things he did in film industry, in poetry, in literature. And for me, it's very important to bring him back to um, our cultural heritage because it's important to have him. It's important to maximize the novelties and the information he provided, to take it from there and to develop more. So totally agree with what you just uh, mentioned. And um, I, uh, I do my best to contribute with, uh, with my work uh, through this research. You've really struck me with what you've said there about, um, I suppose, the links between 
power and authority and control over narratives of history and the past and, and the future. And it's really brought to mind the other half of your day job, as it were, because you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast that you are are also a filmmaker and your other act of creative protest on the go at the minute is is your film, The Batesh Experiment. I, can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Because that's right in the, at the intersection of this idea of, you know, power over narrative and history and future. Yeah, this, this is a project very close to my heart. Um, I started it in 2011. Um, it's treating a hidden topic, as you mentioned, the Pitesht prison experiment. Um, it's a part of um, the Romanian recent history between 1948 to 1952, when the best students in Romania were encouraged to become member of the party, the Communist Party, because the Communists came to power in that time. And so those who refused, they were re-educated. And this re-education, re-education in brackets, was a mental and physical torture between the inmates. Um, and uh, this method was discovered by Anton Semyonovich Makarenko, a pedagogue uh, in the ex-URSSR. Um, he came with this um, idea of uh, re-educating the youngsters in order to have the new entity, the newborn human being, able to fulfill the requests of, uh, of the party, of the um, new doctrine. And um, I, I came across this subject uh, while studying uh, for a summer school, because uh, in that time I was a student at Birmingham University. And during the summer, I applied for some uh, summer schools in my country. And I was very curious um, about the communist crimes in my country because I never learned this uh, in school. Okay. And when I came across the subject, um, I wanted to know if um, we have any visuals related to this, if we have any movies about re-education phenomena, because it's something that we must know. We, in order, you know, in order to um, avoid these things happen again, we have to know them. So searching, I found out there is no feature film about this topic, and I decided to make a movie. It was like nearly 11 years ago. And slowly, slowly, I um, did um, what is called documentation for four years. So each summer I spent it in um, national communist archives or footage archives in Romania. Then I uh, made a press release and I invited people able to talk and share with me information about this experiment to contact me. And so I I got across like the relatives of those who were in uh, this prison. I also met some survivors and I collected all this information in 2015. I started to shoot. Uh, the shootings were finished uh, at the end of the year. And since that moment, I am uh, crowdfunding to finish the past production. And I hope uh, and I believe that this year the movie will be finished and I can show it to you all in uh, cinemas. And basically, I started to do this movie to put, you know, the, the stepping stone in finding out more. Because obviously a movie, and I wanted to make sure everybody will understand, the movie is an experience, an, an artistical way of showing the historical facts. But the historical information can be found in books in accurate information, in archives. So after they will watch this movie, I hope they will Google and find out more. They will read the books. They will um, find their way to the truth. Because 
I, I believe that society is like a house and history is like at the bottom, like a foundation of the society. If we don't know our past, it's very b- difficult to build our future. You're so, absolutely right. Bad or good, we have to know what happened. Are, are you worried about, you know, what else might have been lost to time? You know, other parts of your country's history that have been papered over or pushed into the dark and, you know, people grow older, they may not, might not wish to talk, they might die. Like, are you, how do we fight against that, that inevitable passage of time and, and losing access to that, that part of our history that we do need to recognize and talk about and, and analyze if, if we're to move forward as a society? I think there are so many subjects that have been forgotten. And for us as um, artists, it's very important to dig and search to find them out and to put them at the availability of uh, viewers, of people to, to be able to check them, to find out more. You know, the atrocities in, in history have a repetitivity. In order to avoid this atrocious moment to happen, we have to know them. In order to know them, I believe we as artists, we have to promote this uh, information exactly as they were. And so people will keep this in their mind and will be very careful in case this this will come across again. So our duty in order to fight against uh, this forgotten information that, as you said, it's a crime against culture and uh, against humanity uh, is to do our research, promote this as much as possible and show to the people how the past was and then to learn from it. And if it was good to repeat it, if, if this was bad, to never repeat it again. Can I ask you one final question before we finish up? I suppose really, you know, your work is like uh, archaeology. Uh, you know, it's, it's you. digging back into the past and it's bringing it forward into a new light and to share it with um, newer generations who maybe don't have that same connection to their past or their history. And I'm wondering, what do you think is so important about the medium of film as a way to to carry out this creative protest? What is it about film that that drew you? Um, When I started to do this uh, feature film about the Pitești experiment, I was thinking about the power of um, moving images nowadays in our society. Everything is about um, images, visuals. So. I think movies, they have a huge power and a huge potential to the humanity nowadays. And I thought a movie would enter in people's houses much easy, easier than a book or um, um, an archive document, right? Because they exist, as I said, but we don't come across them. But after you see a movie, a visual, you may go and search further. So I think. This is the, the power of, of um, images nowadays. And we have to use this power as much as possible to transmit a message, to give people knowledge, to make people think, to make people decide what's better for them, learning from, from the past as I do uh, with my movies, but also to, to give information about science, uh, about um, you know projects in the future that must, must be done Images and movies, they have such a huge power and we must um, use it. What a, what a 
beautifully stirring um, note to end this interview on and I, I think particularly of everybody stuck at home in lockdown at the minute we're doing nothing but watching films and you're right it culture in that way is so important um, I, I would end up with um, a quote that I love very much is a quote of Frank Capra that uh, he said no saint no pope no general no sultan has ever had the power that a filmmaker has the power to talk to hundreds of millions of people for two hours in the dark, meaning that you are in the cinema. Wonderful. Oh, Victoria, I let you have the last word. What, what a beautiful way to end this interview. I wish we could talk for a full hour, but it's been such a pleasure having you on, on the podcast. And really, thank you so much for participating. Thank you so much. It was a huge opportunity for me. I hope this will be useful for listeners and I'm here to answer to further questions in case they will be curious to find out more. Thank you, Chiara, so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Emil. Themes of history, memory and challenging the shape of the narratives of our past also feature prominently in our second interview of this episode with Hilary McCollum, another researcher at AEL. By way of a content warning, the final part of this episode features references to sexual violence against women and girls. It's lovely to have you here, Hilary. Would you like to introduce yourself to get us going? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm a writer. I've been writing for a long time. I'll not even go into how long. <laughs> uh, and I've been at Queen's since 2017. So I'm in the final stages of my PhD on creating the lesbian past through fiction. And if I'm right, I think you're doing a creative practice PhD. Would you like to tell us a little more about that? Yeah, so the, the central component of my thesis is a novel which is set in 1928. It's set at the time of the publication of Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness, which, uh, for those of you who don't know of it, it was the first lesbian novel in English and it was banned for obscenity within a few months of being published. Okay, and then you have a critical component as well that's similar to the novel that you're writing. Yeah, so the the two taken together, the 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 novel and the critical component are aimed to answer the question about uh, how do you create the lesbian past through fiction. So part of it is by writing the fiction, but I've also analysed the work of other uh, other writers of lesbian historical fiction, going right back to what I would consider the first lesbian historical novel. Uh, which was René Vivian's A Woman Appeared to Me, um, which was published in 1904 in French, wasn't available in English until the 1970s. Uh, and then coming coming right up to, to novels, the, I think the most recent one I've done was published in 2015. Okay, so that's actually a huge span of time that you're looking at. Have you seen many changes in the novels that you read? Uh, definitely more, they're definitely more sexually explicit now than they would have been at the <laughs> beginning. Um, Even though the first one was not, bad for obscenity. <laughs> well, so, well, so Radcliffe Hall, The Well of Loneliness wasn't, uh, uh, we would perhaps think about it as a historical novel now because we we're looking back on it when it was published. But at the time it was set, at the time, you know, it was a contemporary novel. It was set at the time that it was published. Uh, and interestingly, Radcliffe Hall had considered writing it as a historical novel initially. Uh, and decided that she was going to write it as a contemporary novel. Um, and the most obscene it gets is, and that night they were not divided. Um, <laughs> uh, also says she kissed her on, on the lips as a lover. So it definitely would get the, the heart racing. 
but it's interesting that she she had considered writing as a, as a historical novel because women have used historical fiction as a means of exploring issues that they couldn't necessarily represent so easily uh, if they wrote contemporary fiction. Certainly, that this is in the past. So, in the interwar years, women explored issues around abortion, uh, around same-sex attraction, um, but they set them in the past. Uh, so, I don't know if you've heard of Sarah Waters. PhD. She did PhD before she was a published novelist. It was called Wolfskins and Togas, and that was um, a quote from another writer who said, "You know, you could get away with writing about more controversial issues if you set them in the past. You know, people in wolfskins and togas. Somehow, that's a bit more allowed than if it's seen as being contemporary. So, historical fiction has been a means in the past for for women to explore issues that otherwise they couldn't uh, explore. As if the past is nearly um, a safer place." To explore right, than the yeah. present, even though I suppose the, the past itself, particularly in the context of lesbian historical fiction, is quite controversial. Like even you were saying there about um, Radcliffe Hall's book being banned for obscenity, you know, not really safe to express your sexuality in an open way um, at that time. And I suppose even today we probably see similar things like that. Yeah, so it's one of the one of the novels that I look at is a novel called uh, Under the Udalatries. Um, by Chilna Paranta, mm. and it's set uh, at the time of the Biafran War, but it's an it's an allegory also for present day persecutions. So the Biaf- it's set in the kind of early seventies in Nigeria, um, but it's an allegory for present day persecution of lesbians and gay men in in Nigeria, where uh, there are long sentences for same sex uh, attraction and same sex sex um, and where there are kind of frequent uh, homophobic attacks including people being murdered and there's a woman murdered in in that novel uh, so people yeah writers are still using historical fiction as ways to to explore and expose issues of 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 the now uh, and I think that's one of the important things to think about with historical fiction it's not just about the past it's about the past and it's about the present, and it gives you a way to think about issues that are relevant to our lives now. So the novel that I'm writing is called As a Lover. Um, the main protagonist is a young woman uh, called Maggie, who's originally from Belfast. She's 21, and she's now living in London. And she is aware of being attracted to other women and kind of horrified by it. Um, and for her, the well of loneliness is comes a path to her accepting her own sexuality and her her attraction to women um, so for me I guess part of why I wanted to have Maggie is because she's a working class woman um, and the other the the novel also features um, Radcliffe Hall herself who was a very privileged woman woman and part of what I want to explore is the fact that although they're both attracted to the women, there is also this huge difference in terms of the opportunities that are available to somebody with the wealth that Radcliffe Hall had compared to somebody like Maggie, who didn't have that kind of wealth. Uh, But then they've also got these things that unite them. Um, Radcliffe Hall was uh, sexually abused by her stepfather and her mother was extremely emotionally and physically abusive of her. Uh, Maggie's father, although not um, 
physically abused. Well, he actually was. He was some, some somewhat physically abusive, but particularly emotionally abusive. Um, he, he pretty much hated her. So they've kind of got this this kind of bond between them about things that they've experienced, even though they aren't. They don't know each other. They're not friends, mm. but you kind of see these issues and how they play out in some ways the same and in some ways different because of their wealth and status. Did you have this idea for your novel before you started your PhD or was it informed by the critical work that you were doing? Uh, I think the critical works in, probably informed it in some ways, but yeah, no, I had the, had the idea for the novel before, but actually the ch- it changed when I, when I was, when I, so for, I guess for people who haven't done a PhD, what you do is you put in a proposal of what your PhD is going to be about. So my proposal for the novel, uh, the main character was going to be an English woman in her 30s called Marcy, who was a secret alcoholic. Um, And when I started to write to her, uh, well, I didn't, I never wrote that character. Uh, I moved to Belfast and I don't know, Maggie just called to me. yeah, Maggie just became who was going to be the main character. That's wonderful, isn't it? The idea that the character was already there and, you know, reached out to you through the ether. And I think you have a very good story about a picture, a photograph that um, called to you as well. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so the first the first beginnings of the, of the novel was um, I came across on Facebook, somebody posted uh, images of women firefighters mm. going back um, Go back right to the beginning of the twentieth century, and among them were was a photograph of four women who worked for the Ashiel Serre Dry Cleaning Company. Uh, and when I looked at that, so there, there's a photograph of um, there's a woman on the motorbike, and then there's a woman behind her, and then there's a sidecar appliance that two other women are on. And certainly the two women on the motorbike, when I looked at them, the one sitting at, at the back just is looking at the woman in front of her with such fondness mm. and love and admiration. And for me, it felt like, it did feel like a piece of potentially, uh, you know, lesbian history. That's what I saw in it. I saw an unexplored lesbian history there. Um, and so that I kind of wanted to explore explore that. Uh, I mean, the characters are not those women um, I did try and find out about those women. I went to the, there's an archive for Ashiel Sarah at the uh, Waltham Forest Archive. Um, but there's no details about any of the women, none of that, well, there's no recording of any of the names of any of the women who were firefighters for Ashiel Sarah. Is that common for, <clears throat> is that, a, is that a, a common problem that you come across in terms of your research into lesbian history? That parts are disappeared or... Yeah, I mean, that's one of the the kind of huge challenges for lesbian history is if you look at recorded history in general, uh, it is dominated by the lives of men. It is absolutely dominated by the lives of men. And history, for for you to study history, you have to have records. If there aren't records, then you haven't got history. Right. Uh, you You may be able to have other things, but... but record you know history the, the the subject of history depends on on documented uh evidence uh and this is one of the things that virginia wolf picks up on um in a room of one's own and elsewhere is that that whole sense of of women's history being obscured you know i think the that quote from her um 
anonymous was a woman, <laughs> you know, um, the kind of invisibilizing of women's uh, achievements and creativity, it goes back for centuries. So quite often you're struggling to even find out what was going on in women's lives generally. And then finding out about female same-sex desire is complicated even further. If you look at um, the period prior to the 19th century, almost all the records we have of lesbian history that, that predate the 19th century were written by men. They were written by men who were punishers of women or persecutors of women in various ways, you know, so people who were in charge of criminal law, because in some uh, jurisdictions women were criminalised, in some jurisdictions women um, faced the death penalty mm. uh, for having a sexual relationship with another woman. Um, or they were enforcers of church law uh, against lesbianism. Or they were pornographers uh, or voyeurs uh, who represented lesbian sexuality for their own uh, purposes and ends. And very rarely do you hear the voices of of lesbians themselves speak before the beginning of the 19th century. And it's so interesting that probably a lot of people will have seen Gentleman Jack on, on the television, the, the TV series, which is based on the diaries of, uh, of Anne Lister. Uh, but before those diaries were decoded, Anne Lister would have been seen as uh, a spinster uh, who didn't have sexual relationships. Or if she had any kind of relationships, they might be a romantic friendship, but not... Uh, a sexual lesbian relationship uh, but then once the diaries were decoded and was found you know she had all sorts of codes she had codes for masturbation she had codes for different uh different sexual practices so she was definitely having sex with women um but before that would have been seen as a romantic friendship but it's it's very rare that you would get something like Anne Lister's diaries. Very rare that, that women would have recorded their lives in that way. And she did it in, in a secret code. Most women didn't have access to her education. She was a wealthy woman. So it's great that we've got her, but she is a very unrepresentative of women generally at that time because of the wealth and the status and the power that she had. And often uh, for women, their their next of kin remained their family if they didn't marry which actually many women did marry the, the economic pressure on women to marry was huge but if they didn't marry then if they died it was their family that would then deal with the papers uh, that they might leave behind and often families destroyed evidence of relationships that they didn't want to know about uh, or that they didn't want to become public knowledge. Uh, or sometimes women destroyed their own records. They they didn't want it known. They didn't want it discovered. So there's a huge issue about, about lack of evidence and lack of data. And I think it's great that, that we have lesbian historians um, and they play a really important role. But we are never going to get back mm. the depth and richness of a lesbian past that I think we need without fiction. I think there's a part of me that's very attracted to this idea of, um, you know, the mystery and the decoding in Lister's diaries, as you were speaking about there a second ago. I think there is something that's kind of thrilling about the idea that a history does exist, um, but it's coded. It, it must be discovered. You have to work at it, break it like a, a code breaker. But 
I think if we zoom out a little bit and move away from the thrill of that mystery, you're quite right. Like there's a, a huge section of history that we can't get back that has been lost, that has possibly been forcibly destroyed. And what do you think the impact of this, I suppose we could really call it epistemological violence, has been on women? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think women's history and and lesbian history specifically, but but women's history generally, we have we are at best in the margins. We're penciled into the margins if we're lucky, um, and so the huge achievements that women have 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 made are, are not recorded. But also the the things that women did aren't weren't valued. Um, women's role in in raising children, in taking care of the household wasn't valued um the external world was what was valued and women were allowed to participate in it to a large part and that, i guess that's one of the things i love about uh about actually women's historical fiction and lesbian historical fiction but women's historical fiction has also got um quite a strong tradition of uh women cross-dressing mm. because women's lives were very limited um you know for huge swathes of history women weren't allowed to travel on their own uh, they weren't really allowed to go anywhere on their own until they were married or unless they were married. And even then, once they were married, they might be allowed to go and help some other woman give birth or they might be able to go to market to sell produce, but they couldn't travel freely in the way that, that men could. So one of the things that, that women's historical fiction and lesbian historical fiction gives us is this sense of female agency. And I think I mean, you'll see the the huge response there was to the Hunger Games, um, both as films but also as books, uh, and other other. You know, we've now got within Star Wars, you had a, a female protagonist. We want to see women doing things. We want to see female heroes, and we have been denied that. And I think it really undermines women's confidence in themselves and their ability to do things this sense that we have to always have a man there to save us. Um, so that's one of the things I love about lesbian historical fiction. It is full of women who are not looking for any man to save them. They are, you know, going about their own lives. Uh, my first my first novel, Gold Digger, um, is set in, it's set between the California gold rush and the Irish famine. And, when I, I the kind of spark for that novel, I was driving along and I was listening to the radio and Kanye West Gold Digger came on. And I was listening to that song and I was thinking, wouldn't it be interesting to write an, a novel about a woman that was literally digging for gold rather than after a man for his money? And that's where Gold Digger came came about. And I started, I knew, I'd been to San Francisco and I'd read uh a non-fiction book called The Mayor of Castro Street, which is about Harvey Milk, who was the um, gay supervisor who was assassinated in San Francisco. And I knew that the gay history of San Francisco dated back to the time of the gold rush, where the overwhelming majority of uh, minors were men. And so maybe men who might not have had sex with men in other circumstances had sex with men because that's what was available to them. Um, so I knew about that that history and decided it was going to be set at the time of the, the California gold rush. And as I started to research it, I discovered that the, the first influx of miners came in 1849. And I knew that that's also when the famine happened. And so that that became why 
um, the main character in it is an Irish famine re refugee. By cross-dressing, my main character, Frances, is able to access male worlds that she wouldn't have been safe to access as a single woman on her own. Um, so there's a whole there's a whole thing about female agency and and how that's delivered within within women's fiction, um, women's historical fiction and lesbian historical fiction that I just love. Your work reminds me a lot of that Adrian Rich poem, "Diving into the Wreck," which I think I did for my Leaving Search. Um, and it's it's often read as a commentary on women kind of reclaiming their place in the annals of history, and in particular, I think about that final line about returning to the book of myths in which our names do not appear, um, which I suppose in itself is a kind of protest. Do you read your own work as a kind of protest? Yeah, it is. It is a it's a protest at. at the kind of gender roles and stereotypes and restrictions that have been put on women's lives that have prevented us from being able to fulfill our humanity and our potential to the full degree. And those restrictions are still there. I guess that's one of the things I was talking about earlier. You know, we've got we've got contemporary issues are explored through historical fiction and, and an issue that comes up again and again and again in lesbian historical fiction is the issue of violence against women and girls. Um, I don't know if you know a novel called Fall on Your Knees by Anne-Marie MacDonald. And it's a novel of domestic terrorism, uh, incest and rape. Um, uh, the, the, the father, James Piper, uh, rapes his daughter. Um, he's been incestuously attracted to her since she was a child, but he rapes her after he discovers that she's having a sexual relationship with a black female pianist. Um, and that leads to her becoming pregnant and she dies giving birth to the child. And that whole family is haunted by the secrets and lies that are told about that child that, that, that mm. is given birth to. Um, and you only find out in book eight of nine that, um, uh, Kathleen, the young woman that's been been raped and and dies, you only find out then that she's had this lesbian relationship, um, and I think it kind of hints at the way knowledge of lesbianism has been deliberately hidden and withheld uh, over the past. In 1921, the uh, House of Commons passed an amendment which would have made uh, sex between women illegal on the same basis that sex between men was illegal mm. at that time. And the House of Lords considered that amendment and they rejected the amendment. And the debate said 999 out of a thousand women know nothing about this. And it would be far better if we kept it that way. And so there was kind of deliberate suppression of knowledge about lesbianism and about different ways that women could live their lives. is one of the things I guess I, I kind of still want to protest about. But violence against women and girls has a huge impact on I think all women's lives, whether they've been they've experienced rape directly themselves, whether they've experienced domestic abuse directly themselves, I don't know hardly any woman who's not been sexually harassed. Like I don't know hardly any woman who's not been sexually harassed at least once, usually multiple times. And how much we police our own behaviour because of the fear of what men we don't know might do to us. Uh, you know, where we go, when we go there, what we do, what, where we're, what we're dressed up like, all of those things that women spend so much time and energy having to police their lives because of the fear of male violence. 
And that's aside from then all the impacts for women who actually do experience violence, the kind of long-term impact of rape, the long-term impact of that trauma, uh, the long-term impact of having experienced domestic abuse in women's lives on their health and on their mental health and on their financial prosperity and on their ability to live their own lives. So I would see, yeah, definitely my work as a form of protest, a protest at the way women's lives are still restricted and we are not given the chance to live our full lives um, in the way that men are. Brings to mind that that very famous quote, you know, that um, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. You're right, it does shape how we move in the world, how we think about ourselves, how we relate to others. Um, and something that we have to work hard on undoing for ourselves as time goes on. And I think that's part of why I find the female agency theme within a lot of lesbian historical fiction so appealing as well, because uh, women aren't passive victims. Um, even in the worst circumstances, women aren't passive victims. My my first, uh, the first book I had published was a memoir. Uh, uh, about being sexually abused as a child. Um, but even in that circle, part of why I wrote that, I wanted it to be a story about how I resisted within the capacity I had at the time to resist, which was not, a, I, I didn't have a huge range of options. I couldn't, I guess I could have run away, but I don't, I don't think that necessarily would have been a solution anyway. Um, but within my life, I found the things that gave me joy. I loved the Wombles. I loved Manchester United. I loved going down the fields and playing football. I loved climbing trees. You know, I had agency and I resisted to the best that I could. And I think that's something we should celebrate uh, women's capacity to, to resist and and to try and still find a way to live in the face of often terrible abuse and oppression. I think resistance is the maternal inheritance of all women. That's really something that I, I do believe is a core value that we all carry. That leads me actually very neatly to my final question for you. Um, at the end of my segment with Victoria, I asked her about why she was drawn to film as her kind of cultural artifact of protest of choice. And I'd love to ask you the same thing about fiction. You know, what is it that has drawn you to it? Do you think there's something particularly powerful about fiction as a vehicle of change or interrogation or resistance? I think part, for me, I loved, I loved to read. From when I was a, a, a tiny girl, uh, I learned to read before I went to school. Uh, my granddad taught me to read from the newspaper. Um, and I loved reading. So I think part of it has always been how much I've loved reading. But actually, I have also I've written plays and, and, and that's been a form that I've enjoyed as well. And I guess if I ever got the, chop, the opportunity to write a screenplay, I'd probably love that too. You know, for me, what thing I love is stories. Yeah. And, and they can be told through fiction, they can be told through drama, they can be told through, through film. Um, but it's stories that I love and stories' capacity to change us and to inspire us and entertain us and also to give us a life that we haven't lived you know we live that other life through those characters we meet on the page and I so I love that that's the perfect note to end this interview on Hilary I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me today it's really just been a pleasure thank you I have really enjoyed uh, talking to you 
that's it for April's thematic episode on creative protest. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Victoria and Hillary. It's a pleasure for me to be in conversation with them and make sure that you stay tuned for our researcher spotlight in a fortnight's time when I'll be speaking to Milena Williamson about her work on protest and poetry. This month's episodes were co-produced by Sharon Dempsey and Angela Rogan. Stay tuned for our next installment in two weeks. And in the meantime, let us know what you thought of this week's episode on social media or leave a review for us. We're at QUB Voices on Twitter, Spotify and iTunes.